This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 369. AI and software is going to wipe out most accounting, most audit, most legal jobs. Half of all jobs in the U.S. will disappear in the next five years. So unless you figure out how to take control of your destiny, you're going to be roadkill. Are you tired of just paying bills until you die? Are you wasting your life at a job that doesn't make you fulfilled or financially secure? Maybe you're looking for a way to build a better life for you and your family. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. We spend each week chatting with successful and inspiring authors about their latest books and their unique insights on things like personal and professional development, leadership, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship. This time, we get to welcome back one of my favorite guests, a guy by the name of Jay Samet, as we dive into his book, Future Proofing You, 12 Truths for Creating Opportunity, Maximizing Wealth, and Controlling Your Destiny in an Uncertain World. I'll ask Jay to share what he means when he says wealth comes from creating money, not from earning and saving it, a simple method you can leverage starting today to find new problems to solve, why he believes fear is good, and lots more. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed keeping up on where I'm at in the process of launching my first book coming in August. Just yesterday, my co-author Jesse Wisniewski and I turned in the final corrections, which means we've pretty much passed the point of no return. The book is out of our hands at this point, and next gets printed, which is exciting, as you might imagine. If you'd like to reserve your copy, I'd love for you to do that. There's a couple of ways you can do that. One I've been mentioning the last several weeks, that's still in play, of course, and will continue to be. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. That'll redirect you to the listing on Amazon where you can pre-order a copy right now. Or you can take advantage of a discount offered by my publisher as of this week. Get 40% off the book when you order up to 19 copies or get 50% off when you purchase 20 or more copies and use the code READ to LEAD. For that special 40% off deal for up to 19 copies or 50% off for 20 or more, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash baker for Baker Books, our publisher, readtoleadpodcast.com slash baker. And thank you in advance. I really appreciate it. Jay Samet is a digital media innovator and pioneer in the music, video distribution, social media, and e-commerce space. He's a dynamic entrepreneur and entrepreneur who is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on disruption and innovation. Described by Wired Magazine as having the coolest job in the industry, he raises hundreds of millions of dollars for startups, advises Fortune 500 firms, transforms entire industries, revamps government institutions, and for three decades continues to be at the forefront of global trends. Everyone from the Pope to the President calls on Jay to orchestrate positive change in this era of endless innovation. Jay's new book is called... Future Proofing You, 12 Truths for Creating Opportunity, Maximizing Wealth, and Controlling Your Destiny in an Uncertain World. And could it have been any more uncertain than it has been the last 12 plus months? Uh, I'm excited to have him back. He was first here way back in October of 2015 to talk about his last book. Jay, welcome back to the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me. It's funny, the, the first book, Disrupt You, I spent the past five years, it came out in so many languages, going around the world, convincing people that whether by choice or circumstance, every career gets disrupted. 
I don't have to make that argument anymore. <laughs> Point proved. Point proved for sure. Well, uh, one of the things that intrigues me most about what you spent some of your time doing these last five years was kind of putting your money where your mouth is in a lot of ways. Share about this decision to take someone, an unemployed millennial, as you describe them in the book, and, and in one year prove that your techniques could help them earn their first million. So as I was saying, Disrupt You was probably the most enjoyable thing I've done in my life. When you hear from people all over the world that it's changed their lives, that they've become successful, that they have financial independence and all of those great things. And I heard from people in like 140 countries. I mean, it's in a bunch of languages. It comes out this year in Urdu and Polish and Icelandic. But occasionally I get an email, usually from a millennial, that would say, this is all motivational, but I could never do this. And that aided me. What, where was I missing the connection? I, I raised two millennial sons. I thought I understood the generation. So I decided to put my reputation on the line. I decided to try an experiment. What if I took an immigrant who grew up on welfare, mentored him one day a week for a year, gave him no contacts, no capital, don't tell him what business to do, but it has to be business that takes no money. Could he go from basically homeless to self-made millionaire? And uh, spoiler alert, he did it in 11 months. So I distilled those mentoring sessions down to the 12 truths. And I firmly believe if you follow those 12 truths, you will have great success. Mm. I know one of them for this young man is or was mindset. I know you're a fan of Carol Dweck and her work. Uh, what have you learned, Jay, about mindset and the importance of, of our need to believe in our ability to succeed in the first place? Truth number one. Yeah. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And, and it all starts with that. And in this experiment, I didn't have time for the young man's name was Vin Clancy, for Vin to organically build self-confidence after a lifetime of being told that you can't. So I actually, and he didn't find this out till he read the book, I actually lied to him in our first meeting. There's a psychological principle called the Pygmalion effect. A professor went to school, tested all the kids, told the teacher these three students would be super learners, super achievers. They'd kill it. At the end of the year, they test the school, and those three kids are the best. But the professor lied. He never looked at the test results. He picked three names out of a hat. But if you tell people that they're special and you treat them special, they'll become special. So I only picked Vin. I didn't want to interview and cherry pick the perfect candidate. But I told Vin I had interviewed over 100 candidates. And of all the people that I met, he was the only one that had all the attributes to be a self-made millionaire. And he went along with it. And by the time his first month, he had made $60,000, it was firmly implanted. There was nothing going to knock him over. And, and midway through the year, and you were reading the book already, something happened to his business that he couldn't have predicted, couldn't have prevented. It just sucker punched it and knocked it over. And I was expecting him kind of to crumble. You know, I mean, I would have. It was, a, it was a horrible thing. But that mindset was so entrenched. At our end of the month meeting, he was supposed to, his target for the month was to make $100,000. He came in dejected because he had only made $96,000. <laughs> And I was laughing inside if he could go back six months and say to himself, you know, very soon you will be upset that you only make $96,000 in a month. But I asked him how he did it. And it was the, the true definition of, of a growth mindset. When his business wasn't working, he said, okay, that's not working. Let me pivot and go over here. So he didn't hold on to something that wasn't working. He instantly said, okay, I learned that doesn't work. What will work? And there was a moment or two, I think, as well, where he might have had a couple of things going at the same time, right? So one of, one of the things that's key, especially at the beginning of life and, and uh, later in life as well, is you have to have multiple revenue streams. Mm. 
you never know when your business is going to be disrupted. In, in his case, as with so many online businesses, if Google and Facebook suddenly change all the rules, you could wake up uh, persona non grata. And it had nothing to do with him and it just came out of left field for the first time. But he was building a second business and he said, wait a second, I can use the tools that I'm using for that to help my existing clients. And he just seamlessly made it happen. It, it, was, it was very impressive. Mm. One of the things that, that caught my attention early in the book was when you say, Jay, that wealth comes from creating money, not earning it and, and, and saving it. We're kind of taught growing up that you know, earn and save, earn and save, but it's really more about create. What, what does that mean? So both ways work. So Warren Buffett, let's give him a shout out. He finally <laughs> hit the $100 billion. He's worth more than me. Uh, but he made 99% of that after he was 50. Kylie Jenner hit her first billion at 22. And now being on the wrong side of 50, I will tell you, I would have had a lot more fun with the first billion at 22. <laughs> so what's the difference? The difference is in school, we were taught this basic math problem that I explained in the book. You know, Jeff, if I buy a banana for $1 and I sell it to you for $2, that's how I make a dollar. And, and almost every entrepreneur has that drilled into their head mm. that the only way I make money is taking money from you. So that in game theory is called a zero-sum game. It's like a poker game. You can only make as much money as on the table. But what that does psychologically is if he has money, then I don't have money. If they get the raise, I don't get the raise. If they're taking our jobs, these immigrants are taking jobs foreign. It becomes this dog-eat-dog -dog mindset. That's not how a self-made billionaire with a B happens every 48 hours. It works more like this. Hey, Jeff, sold my last company for $200 million. I'm starting a new one. Would you like to buy 10% for $10,000? You say, yes. What do I now have? I have $10,000 cash and $90,000 in equity. I can hire people with that. I can buy things. I make money out of thin air. Most wealth is created. It's not from a central bank. It's not from the Federal Reserve. Entrepreneurs create value by solving problems, not by selling things. And as soon as you get that approach, it opens one more door. It realizes everybody isn't against you competing for that same small pile of money, which means that there are people that want to help you. Mm. You know, truth number seven, don't fly solo. Find a series of mentors to guide you through this ever-changing, ever more complex world. And if you realize there is abundance, then that explains why people want to help. There's a new practice that I'm beginning, thanks to having read your book. Describe the, uh, the technique you recommend for helping us finding new problems to solve. Oh, maybe we'll come back in 30 days and, and do another <laughs> episode. So I'm a firm believer that you only need two things to be successful, hmm. insight and perseverance. And in Future Proofing You, I explain how to do both. And for insight, it all starts with, as I said, Entrepreneurs don't sell things, they solve things. Solve a problem for five people, you have friends, solve for a million, you make wealth, solve for a billion, you change history. So where do you find these problems? You already have the problems. So write down three problems a day for 30 days. It sounds really easy. What day are you on, Jeff? Day one? Today will be day one, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the first day is kind of easy. Uh, traffic, you know, whatever you're going to do. Mm. But somewhere around day two or three, Jeff, you're going to go, I don't have any more problems. <laughs> which isn't true. What it is, is we're on autopilot. We assume the world always works this way and we don't notice the moment by moment problems. Two guys were in a car in Tel Aviv in traffic and one day it dawned on them, phone company knows where my phone is. 
if it tells me to go left and the other guy to go right, there's no traffic. That was the, that was the inspiration for Waze. They became a billionaire the first year without a penny in revenue. I had a reader that reached out to me who has become a friend. He was doing the exercise, going through it. And one day he's in the morning, taking his medicine. The phone rings, gets off the phone call. Did I take my pill? Did I not? If I, if I take too many, I can hurt myself. If I don't take enough, I don't get better. Oh, I got a problem. So then he, he thought on that and he said, well, I could take a little 25 cent Happy Meal watch, put it on the lid of the pill bottle when you close it. Oh, I opened it three minutes ago. Yes, I did. Oh, I haven't opened it for eight hours. Wait, I can add Bluetooth to that. Now I know whether grandma's taking her medicine. I can add a lock to that so that doctors can only allow you to open for opioids. Became a product sold at every drugstore around the nation. So it really comes from seeing that. And it's not that you have to know how to build and how to do. I mean, some people go, I'm not an engineer, right? You know, either am I. Either Steve Jobs, he built the first trillion dollar company and he wrote as much code as you did, Jeff. I mean, zero. Everything else can be hired. Insight and perseverance are all you need to make it to the top. Mm. You mentioned that there are, I think it's seven keys to problem solving, if my memory serves. Uh, What do you believe are some of those keys that we need to be thinking about? So one of the things when you get to the end of the month that I suggest you do is you sort those 90 problems along two axes. One is what the MBA folks called TAM, Total Addressable Market. How many people have this problem? I teach uh, how to build a high-tech startup at, at the largest engineering school in the country, and I'm not an engineer. Um, <laughs> and, and every semester, there's always a student that's going to create a business to deliver food to the dorms. Makes sense. There's 200 hun- hungry kids with munchies, but it takes the same amount of effort to create Uber Eats. One has an addressable market of millions, and one has 200 people. Uh, so sort by TAM. But the second one is really important. It is not easy. This isn't a get rich quick book. This isn't, I'm not preaching easy. I'm preaching that it's doable and I'll take out as many speed bumps on your road to success as possible. You know, Vin worked harder for one year than most people are willing to, to live the rest of his life in a way that most people can't. So the second axis is what are you passionate about? And to turn that perseverance into passion will get you so much further. You know, what do you care about? Tom Bill you impact theory, wrote, wrote the foreword to the book. And mm. his story was, was exactly this. He had a software company with some guys. It was successful, but their heart wasn't in it. And he came from a family that had some obese people. And he was looking out there, why was there no help for him? And he realized that all the protein bars were filled with corn syrup. They're really candy bars being marketed to people as health food. And so he decided to do something about it. And they created uh, the Quest Bar. And you know, a couple of years later, they sold for a billion dollars. It was that passion that propelled him to go and make the insane decision. There's 1,600 protein bars on the market. I'm going to be 1,601, <laughs> right? And, and I see it all the time. And I give you exercises to find and discover your passion. People go, I don't know what I'm passionate about. Yeah, but your friends do. You know, Your friends come to you for advice on different topics. You're, your friends sometimes have more insight into you because you're too busy being you to know you. Um, which is why I wrote Disrupt You, because everybody wants to change the world, but nobody thinks of changing themselves. And that's where it all starts. I enjoyed uh, one of those Quest bars just this morning. And I started a bad habit a few months ago of sharing a little nugget with one of my dogs, who now every morning when I grab my <laughs> Quest bar expects to be able to sit down next to me and enjoy it with me. 
Well, uh, one of the truths is fear is is good. Why is it important, Jay, for us to learn to to dance with fear? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because this is the one. There are so many self help guru, you know, flim flam guys that always give the speech to people. Fear isn't real. You know, fear is in your mind. Overcome fear. Put fear behind. Lock it in a box. You know, they have acronyms. You know, forget everything. Whatever. Fear is real. Fear is as much a part of your biology as your heart and your eyes. And 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 we are hardwired to be fearful. The oldest part of our brain, the central part of our brain, some people refer to it as the reptile brain or lizard brain, has the fight or flight response. When you walk into a room, Jeff, the first thing that I want to know is, is this person going to attack me, eat me? I mean, before you think <laughs> about anything else, that's what your body does. Am I safe? So you cannot overcome fear. It's biologically impossible. Athletes take that fear to get in a fearful state because it makes your body release adrenaline, which even though they work out and they exercise and they're in peak performance, that adrenaline pushes them. That's what it's there for, that flight response. Time to get out of here. So you only exist because your great grandpa, you know, Ugg Brown, who lived in a cave, <laughs> he saw the saber-toothed tiger, he ran. The guy that's sharing the cave with him, has no descendants. You have fears when you start a business of, I'm going to be embarrassed. I, I might fail. I might lose money. I might lose my family's money. I might lose status. There's a whole bunch of fears. They are real. But as I like to say, if you're walking down the sidewalk, thinking about your business and failing and embarrassment or any fear that you can come up with, and a semi-truck loaded with flammable chemicals is barreling towards you Brakes are not going to stop. What are you thinking about, Jeff? Getting out of the way of that truck. You do not want to die. Dying is probably the top of the list on fears. But what I'm really saying when you take the jokes aside is you can prioritize fear. So those other fears of losing money are real. But if you realize that you're at a job where you're not learning or growing, it's, it's pain enough to show up, not enough to care. Mm. You're not going to be able to support your family in the lifestyle that they deserve or live the life that you want. And you trade a day of your life, a week of your life, a month, a year. You're going to wake up one day and you're going to have given away the most precious thing you have. You will have lost your life mm. because of those silly little fears. That's the fear that you keep. Every day that you waste is a day that you don't get to work on your future. And the days just fly by. And if you don't believe me, if you're lucky enough to still have grandparents, go ask them this question. What's their biggest regret in life? And it won't be what they failed at. It'll be what they failed to try. Mm -hmm. So I believe live a life of purpose. And the purpose of life is, is to somehow improve this world around you. And if you believe that that's what an entrepreneur does is solve a problem, then you can make the world a little better. And believe me, the, the secret to happiness is not money. It's having an impact and helping others. So you can do both at the same time. Now, if you now follow that premise on fear, here's where it gets interesting. Everybody else also has that same fear. And in Future Proofing You, I talk about the three primary fears that people have in business and how to use that when you're trying to close a sale, recruit somebody, get investors. Mm. And I, I remember in my Late 20s, I had a meeting set up with the CEO of Pepsi in Armok, New York at their headquarters. This was going to change the course of my little startup. Oh my God, I knew everything I could about Pepsi. I was so prepared. This was the meeting of my life. For the CEO, this was the only thing between him and going to lunch. Mm. Not exactly equal playing field. <laughs> 
But when I went in there, first thing I did was to thank him for seeing me on this day because tomorrow I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, that's the headquarter of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Wait, he's going to be at our competition. If they do this and I don't and the board finds out, I lose my job. Mm-hmm. Now that fear is going in his thing. What is this <laughs> thing that he's talking to me about? I need to pay attention. And as, as weird as it is, and I tell the story in Future Proofing You, two elections ago, not a single presidential candidate spent a dime on social media. Nothing. Mm. Radio, billboards, TV, that's how we've done it for 100 years. We're going to keep on doing it that mm. way. And I had become CEO of an advertising platform in social media. I'm like, I want some of that $2 billion. <laughs> so I basically went to the four campaign managers who were all old guys who don't live on Facebook or Instagram or any of this. And I explained why this was important and, and used that, that technique. And they realized, because I told each of them I was meeting the others, that if another candidate wins that used social media and they didn't, they'll never get hired to mm-hmm. run another campaign. They are done, through mm-hmm. over. So not only did each one, uh, it was Obama and his three uh, Republican competition, not only did each one hire, but each one tried to get me to work exclusively with them. <laughs> so it went from, I don't care what you're selling to, you can't work with anybody else. <laughs> How much can I pay you not to work with somebody else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned failure being near the top of the fear list. Uh, and it's, of course, you can't have success without it. It's, it's just a part of the journey. Absolutely. What are some of your recommended approaches, Jay, to embracing failure? As you said, it's part of the process. Um, when you play a video game, you don't sit down and four hours later, ooh, I won the video game. You hit some immovable thing and you hammer it until you get past mm. that obstacle and hooray, there's <laughs> another obstacle. And that's what business is, one after the other. And what you have to realize is when you fail, you don't end up where you started. You either earn or you learn. Mm. That's why investors would rather invest in somebody that's already had a failed startup. You know, they're that much further down the path. And what you're doing when you fail is it's not saying I'm not good enough. That's not a growth mindset. It's saying I figured out something that doesn't work. What did I learn? How do I pivot? How do I change it? And so many of the billion dollar companies that we take for granted today started as failed concepts. But they learn by going farther than other people have into the woods to find that real gold. And so, you know, insight continues to be part of it. The only competitive advantage, any business, I don't care if you're selling shoes, have a restaurant or have the killer app. The only competitive advantage you have in the 21st century is getting insight from your customers faster than the competition. Mm. Well, you say that working hard will not make you wealthy. Working hard has been a part of the American dream ever since there's been an American dream. So why do you say that that's not really the way to go? So just as our educational system is kind of stuck in the industrial era, teach people enough math and reading to be a factory worker, Mm. but make sure to conform them to stop thinking outside of the box and thinking on their own. We have this vision of this American dream that you you work hard, you get a a secure job, you put in your 40 years, you retire with a nice pension, (laughs) and, you know, it doesn't exist. It's not security that robs ambition. It's the illusion of security that's robbing ambition. Wages in the United Mm. States have been flat since 1982 when you adjust for inflation. And if you want to go back to that zero-sum game we're talking about, for the bottom 140 million Americans, that's their life. The bottom 140 million Americans are fighting over 1%. That's all that they own. When you look at what happened at our nation's capital Mm. in January, what I saw was thousands of people feeling left out, left behind, you know, living on leftovers because Mm. they bought into this dream that 
doesn't exist anymore. But what does exist is endless opportunities. So yes, you can work hard, you can scrimp and save, and eventually, you know, put it all in the bank and make 1% interest. Go on a calculator and say how long that takes to be meaningful, okay? <laughs> Banks used to have the mm. business model of making money on loaning money. Mm. Hello, the big banks make their money on dinging their customers with fees, right? Mm. I could do a whole thing on banking. I'm on the board of a financial institution, so I'm not plugging that, but it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's, it's insanity to me. Mm. But if you work smart, if you figure out the deal structures that make people wealthy, and I have a whole chapter on our future-proofing you, that money isn't made the way people think it is. So with Vin, Vin was doing marketing for people. He thought he knew social media like everybody else on the planet. <laughs> I told him to fill a void and we get into that. And doing the same thing by just doing that little twist to it, he had people that used to pay him $200 a week to do something that were now paying him $30,000 a month to do the same amount of work. <laughs> but how do you structure that marketing deal with somebody? Well, normally it's, uh, you know, this much work, I'll charge you that much. Mm. But if you're able to make your client millions of dollars, why not say, if this hits this target, if I make a million dollars this month, can I have a hundred thousand? Who's going to say no to that? <laughs> or if I hit my target, will mm. you guarantee to renew for another month or another year? Mm. Or, you know, I, I've done this at a different scale of, if I can take your company from A to Z, I deserve a big chunk of equity because I've now created tremendous value. And I mean, my most uh, egregious or smart, depending how you view it, deal was a company that was going under. I went in and took 50% of it for free. Mm. They were out of money. And 90 days later, took them public for over $400 million. Mm. So in my mind, that's a win-win. Mm. Everybody benefited. So there's always a way to structure a deal. Ray Kroc created McDonald's. McDonald's didn't make money from hamburgers. They made money from selling real estate to the franchisees. Mm. George Lucas, nobody wanted to make Star Wars. Nobody wanted to make a cowboy movie in space. His, <laughs> his first sci-fi movie bombed. American Graffiti hadn't come out. So he said, okay, I'll do this, but I get to own the sequel rights. Mm. And they're like, we're never making a sequel to this thing. <laughs> so when it becomes box office gold, you know, now, 20th Century Fox is on their knees. Please, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll pay you exorbitant amount. But that's not what made him rich. Mm. He said, okay. And it's really his lawyers, but he said, okay, I'll make the sequel, but you have to give me all the merchandising rights. Mm. You don't get a penny off of any of the merchandise, toys, bed sheets, candy bars, lunch boxes. And I'm not going to even pay likeness rights to the, my fellow actors <laughs> uh, you know, that are in the thing. And uh, most successful or second most successful franchise of toys in the history of mankind, mm. that's how he made the billions. And so every, every negotiation you have is a chance for you to do more than make money per hour. My parents wanted me, well, first they wanted me to be a doctor. When I saw that I faint at the sight of blood, they, they switched their goals to, you know, Jay's going to be a lawyer. And to me, that just seemed like doing paperwork for other people. But mm. I have a lot of friends that are lawyers. And by the time they hit 40, this bell hits and rings in their head painfully, mm. which is they only make money on, on a per hour basis mm. for the rest of their life. And at some point, there's a ceiling to what somebody's going to pay you per hour. Mm -hmm. So unless you figure out how to make money when you're asleep, you'll always be working if you want to live a life lifestyle. So you're suddenly trapped in a career that most find unsatisfying. Mm. So deal structure, and obviously you can't cover everything about deal structure in the book, but 
I really tried to give people a way to start thinking of slight changes they can do to whether they're an employee, whether they're, you know, have a side hustle or a business. You described that situation for lawyers. I mean, that's that's the case for a lot of professions, really, right? Uh, I mean, it's yeah. uh, that's just one example. And I, I was recently independent vice chairman of Deloitte. And I'll tell you what terrifies the whole industry. AI and software is going to wipe out most accounting, most audit, most legal jobs. Half of all jobs in the U.S. will disappear in the next five years. So unless you figure out how to take control of your destiny, you're going to be roadkill. And, and I don't say that lightly. I say that because my soapbox really is I love living in a democracy. You cannot have a democracy without a middle class. Fun fact, there's never been a war between two countries that have a McDonald's. So how do you have a middle class? The pandemic wiped out the middle class, Mm. right? Most people struggled. The 150 wealthiest doubled their net worth Mm. in one year. They didn't double what they earned. They doubled their lifetime's worth. But without a middle class, you don't have stability. Mm. And the only way you have a middle class is by entrepreneurs creating jobs and businesses. Mm. And that's why I'm I don't write a book to make money. You don't make money from books. I'm doing this to pay it forward. And what pushes me on is seeing the impact I could have on one person that society would have written off, Vin. And if if the truths in this book could take him from zero to hero, from welfare to a millionaire in a year, what's stopping anyone from doing the same thing? I I, I tend to communicate best by story. Mm. And I tell the story in, in the book. And, when I was in Southeast Asia, I saw loggers use these big elephants to move the logs, these huge, massive, multi-ton bull elephants. And at the end of the workday, they tie them up to a tree with a little, a, a little rope that you or I could break. And I was astounded. So I asked the guy, like, why don't they break free? And he said, well, when they were little baby elephants, it's the same rope. And they tried then, and eventually they just gave up trying. So what's the rope that's holding you back? Mm. When did you stop trying? When did you stop, you know, dreaming? Would, would the, the fourth grade version of you be proud of where you mm. are? And whatever held you or stopped you up until this point, tomorrow when you wake up, you can be a completely new person. You're not carved in stone. We're, we're, we're the most malleable thing on earth. We're adaptable. Jay, you said you don't make money from writing books. I got a book coming out in August. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, not going to make money. I mean, want me to give you the stats on the book industry? No, no, no. no. Yeah. Not necessary. By the way, you mentioned George Lucas. Uh, I'm reading a George Lucas biography right now by uh, Brian J. Jones. I encourage you to check it out if you haven't already read Brian's work. Let's talk about uh, remote workers being the new competitive advantage. What advice would you give for someone managing a a remote workforce, which is a lot of people these days? So that's one of the positives out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I don't make light of the fact that horrible thing, people died and suffered. But we finally proved to people something that's been a trend for decades, that you don't need a big edifice. You don't need to commute 81 minutes to all sit in a building, to sit at a computer. When you got the same computer at home and you could have saved that 81 minutes to have work-life balance. So all the studies so far show the people that work from home are more productive. They're willing to work for less. Matter of fact, in recruiting people, people out of college would rather have the freedom to work at home than have their student loans paid off. That's how much of incentive it is. They save you money as an employer. And there are tons of software tools, and I list about 22 of them in the book that are mostly free so that you can have the same experience. 
I've managed you know, companies with hundreds of thousands of employees, and I've sat in an empty room and created a startup with a few. In the beginning, when a, in a physical, old-fashioned type of business, you're all in a room, you can walk around the floor, you can get the vibe of who's upset, what's going on. You lose that as a manager or as, a, as an owner when everybody's remote. So there's actually a cool tool that I talk about that lets everybody anonymously go, how's it going today? You know, thumbs up, thumb down, you know, and there's, there's just so many, much better. But the real secret, once you get past that, they're more loyal, less turnover, everything you could want is for most of history, you were limited to hire the best people to live within 10 or 20 miles of you. I've yet to meet that neighborhood that has the best people in the world for every possible thing. <laughs> So now with a remote worker, you can not only hire the best people on the planet, they may live in a place where cost of living is less and they work for less. Matter of fact, you no longer have to live in a major city crammed in a small little apartment paying exorbitant rent. You can live anywhere. And what you're now seeing post-pandemic, my, my big prediction, is younger people are not going to wait till they're in their 60s to see this beautiful world. Mm. They're going to have their job and be digital nomads, do their job from Phuket during surfing season and then go to Spain mm. to run with the bulls and go down to Mardi Gras, whatever it is, but they'll have a better life work balance. That to me seems healthier. So mm. as a mentor, I learned as much from Vin as he learned from me. I really got a better sense of the, the goals of a new generation and uh, have tremendous hope for, for our future now that I understand what motivates them. Mm. There is an RV in my future. I can guarantee it. <laughs> self-driving. That's the last invention that I'm really still waiting on. Like, I love my self-driving car. Mm. But when I was a little kid, my dad, uh, we grew up in Philadelphia. And my dad got the government to send him back to school. He's a math teacher when Sputnik went up to get more education. So we got to ride cross-country and see all the stuff and mm. go to Disneyland and all that. And so I repeated that with my kids and took them cross-country. My kids have been to all 50 states. Mm. But I only want to do that now that I'm a grandpa with my grandkids. But uh, I'm not driving 14 hour days anymore, <laughs> but self-driving motorhome, mm. sit in the back, watch North by Northwest, right? <laughs> by the time the movie's over, you're out Mount Rushmore. I mean, I got it all planned out. So <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'll be right there on the road with you, Jeff. <laughs> awesome. Well, I've got a, a couple of questions, Jay, I want to ask that aren't directly related to the book. But before I do that, anything else from the book you want to make sure we, we know about or walk away with today? The only thing that I want people to know is if you want to get the most out of Future Proofing You, I have a workbook. It's free. I don't have any upsells. I don't sell coaching. I don't sell anything. You can't get a t-shirt with my face. But <laughs> if you go to jsamet.com, click on the link, I'll send you the workbook. Because what happens is I try to pack the chapters with a lot of stuff. I'm sure you, you're experiencing this. And you go, yeah, yeah, oh, I got to do that. And then you get to the next chapter and the last chapter goes out the other ear. <laughs> so it's exercises to do after yeah. each chapter so you can mm. build your, your roadmap for your life. And I did the same thing with Disrupt You, but thank you for letting mm. me uh, uh, mention that. jsamet.com, you can put in the show notes. I definitely will. And I'll be picking that up myself because I need that for sure. I'm getting so much out of the book as I did the last one. Uh, give us a bit of insight into your history, Jay, with, with reading and the impact that, that books have had on your life. And if you can, maybe recommend a book or two that we maybe should consider picking up. Sure. So the biggest impact was the fact that I couldn't read. I'm dyslexic. Mm. In elementary school, that was, you're stupid. I, as mm. I said, I grew up in Philadelphia. We had three reading groups in, in, in first grade. The Eagles, the Hawks, and the Mud Hens. Wow. When you're labeled a Mud Hen at five, you pretty much know your life's over. Wow. But what happened from that is 
I was kind of embarrassed about how poorly I read. So when there were group projects, I'd raise my hand to be in charge so I could delegate, you write this and you read that and you know, mm. I'll do nothing, which is the greatest training for being a CEO, <laughs> delegate. Um, so you know, I, I overcame and forced myself. Back then, they put a lot of pressure on speed reading was, was the new thing. Like, yeah, reading faster is better. I still haven't figured out how to read anything close to a normal speed. But there was one book that changed my life. And I read it at a ridiculously young age. And I don't know why. And I wish I knew how I came across it. But it was a mm. book called The Peter Principle. Mm. And if you haven't read it, because it was, came out in the 70s, it goes like this. Every person rises to their level of incompetence in business. Sounds antithetical to what you would believe. Mm. So if you're a good teacher and you're great with students, they make you principal. Mm. Principal doesn't deal with students, it deals with teachers. Well, if you're good <laughs> at managing teachers, then they move you to school board, which is politics and budgets. <laughs> if you're bad at any of these things, you stay at that level. Mm. So everybody rises until they're, they're bad, which explains imposter syndrome, explains why when you're dealing with large corporations, most people are so insecure about where they are that their sole motivation is self-preservation. It's not what's good for the company. It's not, let's have a new idea. If I have a new idea, I might get noticed and lose my job. If I do something different, might lose my job. So once you start seeing the world from that way, it really became much easier for me to work with, you know, all the giant corporations that you've seen and all mm. the famous people. Because I realized that most people are not feeling real confident of where they are at that moment. Well said. Well, you mentioned AI and self-driving cars as you get the book launched. What's ahead for you and your team that you're excited about and able to share beyond those things? <laughs> so, you know, as I said, you know, I've run large companies. I've sat in an empty room and created uh, billion-dollar startups that people use every day. I didn't really want to run another company, but mm. uh, an engineer who worked for me 20 years ago came to me with his new startup, and I felt morally obligated uh, to do it. The company's called Greenfield Robotics. Mm. Hundred years ago, somebody had this genius idea of the best way to grow food is to put a whole bunch of pesticides and herbicides and poisons, because of course that would never hurt us. It just kills mammals and birds and insects and everything else. Yeah, it's killing us with cancer. I won't get into the whole whatever, but how do you take that out? And so long story short, little autonomous self-driving little robots the size of a lunchbox, a little bit bigger, uh, ice chest that go up and down row crops. Think of corn and milo and soybeans, and they clip the weeds. So now what does this do? One, the farmer doesn't have to pay to spray. This is robots as a service. They don't have to buy the robots. So now the farmer makes more money per acre. The consumer gets food that isn't filled with poisons. The leftover poisons don't run down the river and kill all the fish in the Gulf of Mexico. But now the best part, the reason why farmers till the soil is to chop up the weeds. Now you don't have to till the soil. Agriculture is the single largest source of carbon release in greenhouse gases, 25% of what's heating up our planet. So you sequester carbon, you make a healthy food and a healthy planet. How can you not want to wake up every day and, and make that the new norm? And we have 300 million acres of the types of crops that I talked about in just the US. So huge impact. If this caught on globally, this would be more impact than removing all the cars. Well, it's win, 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 win. 
win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, the book again is called Future Proofing You, 12 Truths for Creating Opportunity, Maximizing Wealth, and Controlling Your Destiny in an Uncertain World. I highly recommend it. And Jay's previous book, Disrupt You. I got tons out of both. Uh, Jay, thank you again uh, for appearing on the podcast. So excited to have you back after all this time and really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And I can't wait to see your list of 90 ideas and what you focus in on. If you haven't already read Jay's last book, the one we interviewed him about several years ago, be sure and pick that up as well. It's called Disrupt You. I'll put a link to that book and, of course, Jay's new book, Future Proofing You, in the show notes, along with the book he recommended and the other resources and links mentioned. The show notes page can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 369 for episode 369. Don't forget, you now have two ways to grab my book, Amazon at readtoleadpodcast.com slash book, or get 40% off up to 19 copies when you go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash baker, or get 50% off when you order 20 or more copies and use the code READTOLEAD at checkout. Again, for those discounts, readtoleadpodcast.com slash baker. Hey, we round out the month of April with authors John Stange, Jim Roddy, and a man whose name I love to say, Siru Bouquet. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.